Angela Mazaris giving testimony before the Rhode Island Legislature's House Judiciary Committee with her same-sex partner and their infant daughter said the following, Please join us for our family meals. Come with us on our walks and join us at our playgroup. Sit with us as we read Goodnight Moon and rock our daughter to sleep at night. And then after that, look at me in the eye and tell me that my family is not worthy of equal protection under the law. Bishop John Shelby Spong, speaking about same-sex marriage, said, We are in a transition between a new consciousness and old definitions. The new consciousness will win, as with every human struggle to emerge from ignorance, there will be casualties long after the issue is decided. California Chief Justice Ron George said, Limiting the designation of marriage to a union between a man and a woman is unconstitutional and must be stricken from the statute. In 2004, Massachusetts became the first state to allow same-sex couples to marry, followed quickly by California and Connecticut in 2008. Social acceptance of homosexuality is increasing in the United States and around the world. Former President Clinton, in June of 2000, declared that month, June, to be Gay Lesbian Pride Month perpetually in the United States. On July 8th of this year, the former president spoke at the Campus Progress National Conference in Washington, D.C., and was asked his stance on same-sex marriages. And the former president said, I'm basically in support of it. I think all these states that do it should do it, whatever that means. <laughs> when asked if he was a personal supporter of same-sex marriages, Clinton replied, yeah, I personally support people doing what they want to do. I think it's wrong for someone to stop someone else from doing that. In June, in June 2001, President Bush upset the gay lesbian community when he refused to recognize Gay Pride Month, they considered it a slap in their face. Susan Raffo, a self-described lesbian American, writing on a website called The Progressive, slammed President Bush, saying, Bush's refusal to, to recognize Pride Month is merely the latest in an appalling record on gay and lesbian rights. As governor of Texas, he supported a Texas law allowing the state to take away adopted children from gay and lesbian couples and place the kids with heterosexual couples. He also opposed modifying the state's law on hate crimes to include sexual orientation. President Obama, who stated that he is personally against same-sex marriages, nevertheless repeated Clinton's declaration of Gay Lesbian Pride Month this year, including transgenders and bisexuals on his list. What a culture celebrates says a lot about that culture. The Christian community as a whole has been vocal in its opposition to acceptance of homosexuality as a normal variant with regard to sexual orientation. And as a result, Christians have been labeled ignorant, unkind, hateful, arrogant, intolerant, and homophobic, my favorite. To be sure, to be sure, some Christians have crossed the line and have entered into hateful behavior. Kill the fags and 
queers will burn in hell banners and bumper stickers are unhelpful and uncalled for, to say the least. And I want to say publicly, I have no part with those people. I have no part with those people. But it is fair to make an honest and rational inquiry as to the validity of the Christian claim that God designed marriage and subsequent sexual relationships that take place within that marriage to be between one man and one woman. Is this a biblical concept? Can we validate that from the Scriptures? Or are we just yelling a wrong argument more loudly? Just because you yell something more loudly doesn't make it right. Can we quietly, rationally, reasonably look at the Scriptures and come away with the understanding that marriage should be between one man and one woman? And by the way, since I also understand that the boundaries that God sets up for any form of sexual activity occur within the marriage context, then anything I say about the marriage relationship would also include human sexuality in general. I hope that is clear. A reasonable search for truth and a commitment to live consistently with that truth is not hateful. It's a loving thing to do. In fact, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, these, it needs to be exercised in a loving way. And sometimes, quite frankly, Christians can become unkind. And it doesn't help anything. All it does is give the, the, the people who are on the other side of this fodder for their films. I was sitting in a movie theater not too many months ago and was appalled when a film was advertised. Uh, it was a pro-homosexual film, anti-Christian film. And they had clips of Christians saying some of the most vile things in the most hateful manner. That is not helpful. That is, that is hateful. And we are not called to hate the homosexual. Now, we are called, I think, to, to disregard and to hate sin like God hates all sin and, and hate homosexuality. But kill the fags? That's, that's not a Christian concept. Where did you get that? And I'm speaking editorial, of course. We don't do that. But some of these groups that do, don't do us any favors at all. So we need, to, we need to find out what the truth is, and then we need to exercise the truth calmly and rationally and lovingly and kindly. That's, that's what we're called to do. That's a much greater apologetic for the Christian faith than to scream some of these hateful things. People, people are attracted to love. They're not attracted to hate. And that's why I've said before, I think love is the greatest Christian apologetic. We can say what we want, but if we say it in a hateful manner... We are, not, we are not doing as the Apostle Paul prescribed, speaking the truth in love. We need to be very, very careful with this. While there are many biblical texts that address the issue of human sexuality and the boundaries that God set forth for interpersonal relationships and sexual practice, none is more fundamental to the discussion than the passage that we study this morning. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. This morning, and we'll begin at verse 18 as we continue our study in the book of Genesis. None of, the, none of the passages in the Bible are more fundamental to our understanding of human sexuality and the boundaries that God has placed upon this activity, this very legitimate activity that he invented. May I say, sex is not bad. God invented it. 
when it goes bad is when we participate in it outside the boundaries that God set forth. We take something that was beautiful and turn it into something sinful when we exercise that outside of the normal boundaries. So this passage is fundamental to our understanding of this issue. But before I go any further, I don't want to imply that that is all that this passage reveals. Far from it. There's much, much more in this passage, but a careful study of Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25 lays a foundation, a foundation for our understanding of God's design for human sexuality. In this passage, we will discover that God intended that a man and a woman, a man and a woman, be a spiritual, functional unity, walking in integrity, serving Him, and keeping His commandments. If this pattern is followed, man would live and prosper under God's hand of blessing. The original recipients of this letter, the Jews in the wilderness, would understand that if they also function under the norms and standards that are set forth in these first few chapters of Genesis, then and on through the law as well, then the nation would stay in a place of blessing. And we too, we too can make this same application, I believe. If we as a nation, made up of believers and unbelievers, will humble ourselves and live consistently with the biblical standard, then we will be blessed as a nation. And not just with regard to this one issue. This is just one thing. Sometimes we get so hung up on one thing. There are many sins. This just happens to be one. But if we embrace and celebrate and celebrate something which is against the divine order, we will find ourselves in opposition to God. And that's not a place that any of us want to be. You never want to find yourself lined up on the opposite side of the line with God. I'll never forget, there was a fellow by the name of Tupa, T-U-P-A, that lined up on the opposite side of me as a senior in high school. And that was decades ago. And I'll never forget because I was scared of him when I lined up against him because he's a lot bigger than me. I was a tight end. He was a tackle. And I looked up and I said, here's Tupa, all state. Actually, he was a defensive end. All state defensive end. And he's fixing to knock my head right off. And he looked up at me like, I'm going to knock your head right off. Gave me a concussion. First play. Gave me a concussion. Knocked me clean back on my keister. Gave me a concussion. I'll hardly remember the rest of the game. Well, if, if that was bad, lining up against this fellow Tupa, who I've never spoken to or seen since, and I'm glad that I haven't. <laughs> if that's the case with Tupa on the other side of the line against you, what about lining up against God? And you're down in your stance, and you look up there, and there's God. And he said, uh-uh, sport. This is not the direction I want you to go. <laughs> you may as well just say, time out. Could you put somebody else in this game instead of me? Well, that's what happens to us. <laughs> we just need to, you know what? Life is easy. We make it so hard. Life's much easier than we make it. If we would just find out what God wants us to do, and we would do that, not in a legalistic way, but in a loving way, I mean, if we would do that, our lives would be so much easier. But we're always trying to figure out a way around it, aren't we? And that's not the right thing to do. The final portion of Genesis 2 describes the creation of the woman as man's complement this section is foundational to our understanding of the biblical principle 
of the institution of marriage. Again, please, again, the Bible expands greatly upon this information about the marital relationship elsewhere in the Scriptures as the Scriptures unfold. But what I'm saying now is our, pa- our passage today it lays a foundation. Everything else is built upon this. Now, if we don't understand the foundation, we'll never understand what's going on in the Mosaic Law. And we'll never understand what's going on in, in certain chapters, say, of the, book of the letter to the, to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians. We won't understand that. But if we get the foundational things right, then those passages will fall right into place. They'll make perfect sense. And then we can discuss this issue, the issue of same-sex marriage or homosexuality or, or any form, any form of sex outside of marriage, any form of sex outside of marriage. We can discuss that reasonably rationally, calmly, and lovingly. And then people will want something of what we have rather than running away from us saying, I want nothing to do with those nuts, those hateful nuts. We're not hateful nuts. Christians are not hateful nuts. Some are acting like it. The Bible is a book of love. Verse 18 will express, or it's God's expressing his intention as to what he's going to do. Now we'll spend most of our time today, because this is, this is a a critical verse for this entire passage. Most of our time will be spent in verse 18. But verses 19 and 20 will indicate that Adam looks around and there's no helper, there's no ezer for him in the animal kingdom. Then in verses 21 through 23, we see the creation of the woman and we see that the creation of humankind has reached its goal in the complementary partnership of the man and the woman. And then finally, in verses 24 through 25, we will see that Moses speaks of this principle being the foundation for the idea of marriage. Again, verse 18 is 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 more or less a summary statement. We're going to kind of get the end first, and then Moses, Moses, as he records this, is going to go back through the beginning, so that the, the sequence is a bit different. But follow along, and I don't think you'll have any problem. As... Our passage begin because the man is not yet how God planned him to be. Now, you'll recall, or at least if, if you weren't here, let me explain to you for the first time. Genesis chapter 2 expands upon, primarily, day 6 of creation. We've already, we've already seen one account of creation in Genesis chapter 1. Now, this is an expansion upon what happens on day 6 and actually a little earlier as well, but primarily on day 6. So we see that as this passage begins, man is not how he was supposed to be. Adam is alone. And that's pronounced not good. The only thing that God has labeled as such so far in this creation, that's the only thing. First time it's come up. Read along with me. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. For I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, this phrase, I will make a helper suitable for him, is, is as packed with applicational theology as any verse in the Bible, or any even phrase in the Bible. This is so important for, us to, for our understanding of the relationship between men and women. If we had a right understanding of this, I think, and, and, and lived faithfully with it, then I think so much of, of the antagonisms that go on in Christianity could be solved right away. That's why I want to take a a quiet, relatively quiet, reasonable, rational, loving look at this passage, and I think you'll see that it lays an incredible foundation. 
the, the term good, tov, Hebrew term tov, is descriptive of that which is appropriate and fitting within the purpose of creation. That which is appropriate and fitting within the purpose of creation. That's what God calls good, tov. Man being alone was not good. It wasn't tov. Because in that state, he could not fulfill all that God had intended and purposed him to be. When he was alone, he could not fulfill all that God had intended and purposed for him to be. God's plan was for man to live in community. And Adam learned very quickly, we'll see in, in the next couple of verses, that, that it was not the ideal for him to be alone. I want to make an important note here before I go any further with this passage. And I want you to listen to me ever so carefully. Everybody listen carefully. There are some believers that are ordained to go it alone. There are some. So, it's a reality that not all believers will get married. And that, that bothers a lot of people. And if you're in that status this morning, I, I understand. Paul, for example, went it alone. And he considered it preferable to having a wife, given the specific function that God had placed upon him in the body of Christ. He even says that. He said, I, w I wish you could remain like I am, because there's certain things to do. His point was, if you have a wife, then that wife is your first ministry. And in his case, God had given him certain unique things to do, and that wasn't to work out for him. All we're saying, though, is is that's not the norm. And perhaps you're here this morning and you aren't married. Some of you are rejoicing in that, but, but others are, 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 are perhaps, there's a certain amount of anxiety over that. So please, don't take this passage to mean, or to indicate that you are somehow necessarily incomplete. God has a plan with norms and standards. And then he ordains for some purpose that he may reveal, and for some purpose that he may not reveal, he ordains some individuals to remain single in contrast to the norm. Don't ever force a marriage. Living single is preferable to a bad marriage. And I know sometimes that happens. I've talked to so many over the last few years, many years, that that they got to a point where they, they, they felt a loneliness, they wanted to get married, and then they made a poor choice and they regretted it weeks, months afterwards. Now, don't do that. If you're single and, you, and you're fulfilled in that situation and God hasn't brought you a husband or a wife yet, stay that way. Focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't rush into something that wasn't God's design for you. If you're in that situation, know God, love God, focus upon Him, and then become imitators of Him. Everything's going to work out just fine, whether you're single or married, if that's what you do. If Jesus Christ is the focus of your life, you're going to have inner peace and contentment and happiness, whether you're single or whether you're married. So please, don't take this passage as indicating I can never be happy 
unless I find a husband. Or I can never be happy unless I find a wife. Yes, you can. All this passage, this passage is laying a foundation. And there are always exceptions to the foundation. Paul being one of the biggest. And I would hope that most of us would admit that Paul was, if not the greatest believer of the first century, he is certainly up there somewhere. So it can be done. So please understand this. these are foundational doctrinal teachings. Don't rush into something uh, based upon this passage. Now back to our passage. Verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Perhaps a better understanding or a better translation, and some of your Bibles might even give this in the margin, corresponding to him. A helper corresponding to him. The term ezer, which is translated helper here, refers to one who supplies what is needed in another. One who supplies what is needed in another. Now, I'm fully aware that this is where it gets dicey. <laughs> Because whether it's within Christianity or with outside of Christianity, there seems to be this thing that somebody labeled back in the 70s, the battle of the sexes. You know, this, this tension between men and women. You know, the, the whole idea of inferiority and superiority. Not this whole thing that is a misunderstanding of what has been foundationally laid in Genesis chapter 2. So if you're of that mind, if your ears have already perked up and you say, well, wait a minute. You mean he created me to help him? Calm down just a second. <laughs> I can feel your tension. <laughs> Calm down just a second. I think within about uh, oh, eight to ten minutes you'll, have, you'll come away with a totally different perspective if you just look and see what this passage actually says. Ezer refers to one who supplies what is needed in another. You know, we sang a song, Come Thou Fount, this morning. In one of the verses, it's not there anymore. Here I raise mine Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I'm come. You've heard that. I, I bet if we took a poll, there's, there's probably not hardly any of us that would know what an Ebenezer is. An Ebenezer is an Ebenezer. It's a rock of help. But that last part, Ezer, you, you kind of hear that in the, in the term Ebenezer, Ezer. That refers to one who supplies what is needed in another. So gentlemen, right off the bat, we have to humble ourselves and realize that, that we need something, at least as t- in the terms of the norm, We need something that we don't have ourselves. The woman was created to help Adam, to supply assistance, to provide what was lacking in the man, who who can do what man alone was not designed to do. Over the centuries, many women have taken umbrage at the concept that is presented here without realizing that in most contexts in the Bible, when the term Ezer is used, a helper, it's used of God. The term Ezer is not a demeaning term in any way. It's used overwhelmingly for God in the Bible. God is the helper in the Bible. So when the scriptures tell us that Eve, that's not her name yet, but the woman was created to be a helper, an ezer for Adam, that is in no way demeaning, by the way, either to the woman or the man. This is just God's plan. It's his design. Now listen, if you get this, especially the next phrase corresponding to him, if you get this, I can all, and you'll apply it. If you get this and you'll apply it, 
I can almost promise you that your marriage is going to get better. I can almost promise you that. If you, and it doesn't seem like it. I don't know that... I don't know how many books on marriages begin with this passage, but if they did, they would get this foundational concept, how it was from the beginning. And yes, I know we haven't gotten to the fall yet. We'll talk about that in Genesis chapter 3. But God's design of man was not flawed. If we, if we get this, we're going to have better marriages. If God, God's design of man was not flawed, and the creation of woman was not an afterthought, this was God's best. This is perfection. It is perf- the way this is designed, one man, one woman, fulfilling the needs that each other has, is perfection. Man and woman worshiping, worshiping the Creator in reverent service is the ideal. And again, God makes loving provision for exceptions. I want to continue to, to bring that before you so you understand that. God makes loving provision for those who are in a position of an exception. But we're speaking this morning of the foundational principle. The woman was created to help the man in reverent service and worship of the Creator. Now, if you're thinking ahead, you already know when we get to chapter 3, that's not what's going to work out, is it? She was created to help him, to help him worship and to help him serve. And what's going to happen in chapter 3, we're going to see that it didn't work out that way. Actually, she helped him to fall. And that's why Adam's going to say, when God approaches him, that woman that you gave me. And we all, we all chuckle with that, and we all say, Adam, you loser for saying something like that. But actually, he had a point, and we're going to get to that. Now, his point was wrong, and it was, it was short-sighted. But he's saying, what he's saying, in essence, is, well, listen, she was supposed to help me. And look what she did. But I ate it. So he finally does confess. So, so he realized that it was her function. Her function was to make up something that which was lacking in him. He could have fallen all by himself, thank you very much. He didn't need her help to do that. But that's going to be his point in chapter 3, in case uh, this is all you could take and you decide not to come back for chapter (laughs) 3. The term corresponding means according to his opposite, or perhaps his counterpart. The woman shares the image of God... In the same way that man does. That was made clear in Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27. So before we ever get this expanded account of her creation, we find out in no uncertain terms, very strong terms actually, that the woman was created in the image of man just like man was. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. There is no fundamental inferiority in either one of the sexes or superiority in either one of the sexes. And we need to understand that. And maybe this battle of the sexes would go away. There is, there is no inerrant inferiority in either the male or the female. They were both created in the image of God. Husbands and wives are both created in God's image and have, watch, equal value before God. Remember that. It'll help you in the future. So the woman shares the image of God in the same way that the man does, but she's different, both physically and emotionally, and in other ways as well. 
This does not indicate in any way that she's inferior. She's different. And she was created to correspond to the man to supply what was lacking in Adam. When we come to, gri- when we come to grips with this biblical principle, many things are going to fall into place. And life is going to be so much easier for us. Maybe the battle of the sexes will take a break. And we could have more God-honoring marriages. Now, this is one reason why believers are commanded not to marry unbelievers, and why it's not a good idea for a believer to marry another believer if the two are at fundamental odds over the concept of worship. Because, you see, if the man and the woman were created to worship and reverently serve God together, and there's a fundamental disagreement about that aspect, then the marriage is not going to achieve the potential that that you want it to have. And that just that, that goes without saying. So you, you can already see one reason why later on Paul will take this and he said, this is why I don't permit that. And there was a reason for it. The idea of correspondence, the idea of correspondence is a fundamental idea. The man and the woman correspond to one another. Now, we're going to see in a minute that Adam's going to look all through the animal kingdom, he's not going to find any of the beasts that correspond to him. So, therefore, it's wrong for a man to marry a man or a woman to marry a woman. It's outside of God's design. Or for that matter, a a man to marry a monkey or marry any other aspect of God's creation. Read along with me the next two verses. This will make more sense. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. Now, to name something in the ancient cultures meant that you had some sort of ownership over it or authority over it. Now, God owned it, and God said, you name them. And the man gave names to all the cattle and all the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field, But for Adam, there was found no helper suitable or corresponding to him. There wasn't anything in the animal kingdom like that. So, it's it's outside the boundaries. Now, now we see, we almost cringe at this, but this is the Word of God. I'm not going to shy away from teaching it to you. We, we, We have these boundaries set up. And I don't care how much you love your cat... Or your dog, you can't marry him. They can be a companion for you, but you can't marry him. Now, I, I say that, and, and there are chuckles, but make no mistake, some of the current legislation being considered in the United States would pave the way for that nonsense. It would open the door for it. You know, just, you know, if, if marriages between two aspects of God's creation, they just love each other so much. It has already been proposed, by the way. All you've got to do is listen. It's been proposed that, well, there should be no boundaries then. Man, man, woman, woman, man, beast, man to many women, and so forth. I don't want to get, get too far down that road. But all you got to do is listen to the radio. They'll go down the road for you. Listen to the radio, read the newspaper, get on the Internet, read some respected news site. It's all there. You know, I wonder if our founders 
were able to somehow miraculously come back and, and sit in this service today or, or read some of the things that are out there today, if, if they would just be aghast at what we even have to talk about today. But we do have to talk about these things because these are issues within our culture, and this is where we can get the foundational structure for understanding that. So there, there are boundaries. A man doesn't correspond to a man. Men can be great friends. But listen, if there were no women on the planet, and it was just guys, there would be no planet. Because we had all killed each other a long time ago. And you know exactly what I mean. There would be no freeways. There would be no freeways because somebody cuts in front of you. If you didn't have your wife sitting next to you to say, listen, that's enough of that. Be quiet. Don't interact with them. You know, if, if you didn't have somebody that would that be willing to do that for you, and I know we get upset with y'all, don't we? And, and I'm not I'm not picking on anybody, but sometimes sometimes that happens, and we we think, golly Moses, you know, but she's right, and that's what adds the stability to civilization, and I think we do a part to help y'all too from time to time. There's some things that we bring to the table as well, but this idea of correspondence, you're trying to figure out what it is. I'll I'll think of something in a minute. I had an illustration for the woman helping the man. I don't have one right now for the man, but oh, there are a few. So the man and the woman are different. And anyone with a brain celebrates that difference because God made it that way. He made us to where we correspond to one another. And that correspondence is, 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 is two pieces fitting neatly together. Physically, and emotionally, and spiritually. It's two pieces fitting together in that way. While this will be made explicit in the Mosaic Law, from the beginning it was understood that God designed a one-man, one-woman relationship. And that purpose, again, was so that that pair would reverently serve and worship God. If you think about that, the next time you attend a wedding, or you, you know, perhaps when you get married yourself, if you realize when you say, I do, and you join into union with your partner, if you realize one of the, if not the primary purpose for you doing that is not simply to procreate, although he's going to tell them to be fruitful and multiply. It's not simply for that. But it's to honor and worship and serve God. Then you'll realize that the function of your marriage is maybe greater than what you thought it was. The purpose of your marriage is for the two of you to get together. And then a family, when that family gets together, to get together and to honor God, to worship him. See, Adam, Adam couldn't do this. He needed help in serving God. So that's why Eve was created to begin with. The man and the woman correspond then physically, spiritually, and socially. They fit together, if you prefer that. Physically, spiritually, and socially. A man and a man don't fit together. Either physically, spiritually, or socially. Not, not in the way that the man and the woman do. Now, women can have friends, and they be friends for life and great friends. I've got friends, friends for life that I wouldn't trade for anything. But it's not the same as the marriage relationship. And you know that which about I speak. And then in verse 19 through 20, we see again that no ezer, 
No helper corresponding to Adam is found in God's creation before the creation of Eve. He gave names to, the, to all the cattle, to all the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper. You see, there was, there probably, apparently there was two of everything at that point. But Adam's looking around. He has, calls all these animals to him. God probably supernaturally brings them to him. And he's a horse. No, magnificent animal. I think I could ride that horse, but I can't have a, a social, spiritual, physical relationship. That Something's not right. A monkey, a fish, whatever it may be. So Adam, Adam is lonely by the time that that's finished. Because he realizes there's no ezer, there's no helper. And again, that word helper is not a demeaning term. It was used, it's used of God. Most of all the other places it's mentioned in the Bible. There's nothing wrong with being a helper anyway. Where did we get that idea? You know where I think we got the idea? Somebody, get the help to do that. And that's, that's a very unchristian concept as well. You can tell a lot about a believer as to how they treat the help. That's a very significant thing. So a helper is not a bad term in any way, not a demeaning term. So now that there's no, correspondent, there's no corresponding helper, New American Standard says suitable, which is okay, but corresponding would be better. Verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he, God, took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in that place. You see, while he created man out of nothing, he'll create the woman out of the man. And the Lord God fashioned, or Hebrew term built, into a woman, the rib which she had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And this is what the man says in verses 23, or verse 23 rather. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, woman, because she was taken out of Ish, man. Now those, those two terms actually have different roots, but it's Ish is the term for man. Isha is the term for woman. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There's a unity there. Right from the beginning, there's an intimacy. An intimacy of flesh. I, I suppose the only thing we could, we could uh, try to make an analogy to it today is, is if someone gives, say you were to give your sister or your brother your kidney. Or maybe a stranger your, your, uh, your kidney or, your, or some other organ that you could spare. And then there's a, there's a unity there. Because of the, you, you share some flesh together. Well, Adam got it. He understood it. The creation of the woman, with the creation of the woman now, the creation of humankind has reached its goal. Now it's complete. And now it's going to be what is referred to in, in chapter 1 as tov me'od. Not only is it not, not good, but it's very good now. It's complete. Then in... Verses 24 and 25, it would appear as though Moses is coming back. And he's, he's making an application for the Jews that are in the wilderness of this principle, of the principle of marriage. So if, there's, if there is a woman that was created for Adam to be a cor- corresponding help to him, and vice versa, the woman gets something out of the deal as well. It's just spoken of from Adam's perspective here. Now, if that's the case, then well, what happens to relationships after Adam and Eve? And so now Moses, it's, it's thought by most Old Testament scholars, Moses is now commenting here and speaking to the Israelites, the, the contemporary audience there, and this could be our contemporary audience as well, for this cause or for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and shall cleave, 
to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The Hebrew term for cleave is dabak, dabak. And it's the way it's used here may very well have sexual overtones, but at its core, it means to be in close association implying a normal, continuing, continuing relationship. Once they're bone of bone and flesh of flesh, once they have united in a corresponding relationship, that was intended to be a permanent thing. You know, there's always going to be exceptions to this, but that was the intention for it to be permanent. That's the ideal for it to be permanent. And if you haven't gotten married yet, let me, let me just give you two cents of advice, and this will be it's worth what you're paying for it, I, I would suppose. But if you had not gotten married yet, realize when you say, I do, this is not a trial run. Anybody that I marry, I always counsel them in this way. You're saying, I do, for the duration. And if you can't do that right now, wait. Wait until you can do that, until you know the person well enough where you can actually say, I do, and mean, I do. Not, I'll do it for a while. I'll give this a try. Um, it's unfortunate that the statistics for Christian divorce are almost the same. It, it fluctuates up and down. Sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower. But they're almost the same as non-Christian divorces. So, this is the ideal. And there's a reason why it's the ideal. Because there's a certain intimacy. There's an intimacy of body, yes. But there's an intimacy of soul that's even stronger than that. And Paul's going to pick this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and other places. And, and, and talk about that's why sexual immorality, sex outside the bounds of marriage is so bad. Because that, that intimacy, that one flesh idea was, was interrupted. But to cleave is a very important term. Now, now many, when they study this passage, they, they think only of the, the physical cleaving, and that's certainly a part of it. I wouldn't deny that. But there's more to it. There's a cleavage of soul that takes place. There's a cleavage of soul that takes place. And when there's a cleavage of soul that takes place, then when we get down the road... 10, 15, 20 years into the marriage and hair falls out or waistlines expand a bit or you run into times when he or she is a bit cranky. Really, that, that happens to some people, I guess. <laughs> Hadn't happened to you, I can see that. But sometimes the husband or wife can get a bit cranky. If there's a cleavage of soul and not just of bodies, it's a little more difficult to walk out that front door. Because the soul relationship is still there. Well, this is foundational. I hope you've seen that. We're almost finished. But I hope you've seen it this morning. This is foundational. Now, Moses is speaking, remember, to a patriarchal society. In a patriarchal society, you would, you would have a father with, with perhaps many sons and daughters. They would, they would be a clan, in a sense. And they would have one huge tent or home and then... When the sons and daughters grew older and took wives, then they would, usually the sons, sometimes daughters too, but they, but they would stay within this patriarchal clan. So Moses says here, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. Well, in a patriarchal culture, it's not like they're going to leave and move to Montana. It's not what you should do as a child. You shouldn't move that far away from your parents as far as I'm concerned. 
I thought I'd throw that in for all parents here, not just for me. No, it doesn't mean that. No, it can if that's where the job takes you, of course. It doesn't, but it doesn't necessarily mean geographically because in this culture, in this context, they weren't going anywhere geographically. Do you see that? They weren't going anywhere geographically. But there was a new relationship that was formed within that clan, within that patriarchal relationship that now was in some sense separate. In some sense separate. So that's why Moses, speaking of marriage, and this is often quoted in the marriage ceremony, isn't it? For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother. What, what it means is now you're out from underneath that protective wing. She's not here this morning, and I don't think she, she'll listen to this tape, so I will tell you now. Back on January 10th of this year, I think it was 10th, right? I did one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And that was walk my precious daughter down the aisle and place her hand in a, in a fellow who's a great guy, loving guy. He's been a wonderful husband, and, I, and I'm happy to do it with, with him, but it wouldn't matter who it was. It's a difficult thing for a dad. Uh, not only did I do the service, but I walked her down the aisle, placed my hand in, in my daughter's hand, in her, her husband, husband-to-be's hand, and, and put her under his leadership. It's, it's like I'm, there's, a, there's a reason for that part of the marriage ceremony. You know, when, when, the, when the father or the mother and father, whoever it is, stand up and say, who gives, you know, the pastor says, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And you, you say, I do. Now, that's the hardest I do in the service. I'm telling you from a dad's perspective, have sympathy on the dads. Because then they'll step back, symbolically. They step back, and then they go sit down, and then the couple goes up and they take their vows. That, that's very symbolic. Because what it's saying is, now, my precious little sweet pea, my little princess, who is under my guardianship and my wing of protection for that time, now she's under Robert's wing. And, and I can think of no better wing for her to be under. But still, it's different from her being under mine. And that's what Moses is saying here. She's leaving that protective wing. Now, I'm still her dad. Still talk to her multiple times a week. Still love it. She's still my daughter. But now there's a different family unit. You see that? Everybody sees that, I hope. There's a difference in the unit. And if something was to occur, I would hope that she wouldn't just pick up the phone and say, Daddy, you know what he did today? Because I'm going to say, hey, get back there and work it out. You know? Now, we're all always dads, we're always moms, but this is, this is, there's something different. So, don't mistake this, even in the, in the relationship of the clan, the family patriarchal unit, unit, where they don't separate geographically, there's still a form of separation that takes place. Now, there, you have a new family unit within the larger family unit. And finally, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were not ashamed at this point. Sin had not entered into the world. They had no knowledge of good and evil. There was no fear of exploitation from their nakedness here. That's all going to change. It's all going to change very soon. It's all going to change in the next chapter. Heavenly Father, help us. These issues are so vital to us today in our culture and in our marriages and in every other way, but... Help us to go back to the Bible and to lovingly and kindly and rationally and reasonably and quietly take a look at the way that it was set up and then, and then to change our culture in a good way, in a positive way, in a loving way, not in a screaming, shouting way. But, but help us first to change our own minds and our own marriages and our own relationships and then help, it, help us to expand that out into our culture, Father, so that we could be in your place of blessing and not lined up against you.
Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has never personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life, I do pray that the Holy Spirit would work on their heart even now, that they would understand that you love them so much that you sent your only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life, that salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. We pray that, that the Holy Spirit would give them a special conviction today of their need for, for a Savior and realize that Jesus is the only way. For those of us that have trusted you through your Son and do have eternal life through no merit of our own, Father, help us as we go our way to glorify you this week by reverently serving you and worshiping you. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.